0: Welcome to the Cumberland School of Law Research Radio, sharing stories about why faculty write what they write in legal scholarship. Hi, this is Blake Hudson, dean of the Cumberland School of Law. Today, I'm going to chat with our resident healthcare law expert, Professor Cianello D.K. Minor, to learn about her transition to academia and about some of her recent scholarship. Cianello, thanks for talking with me today.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here.
0: About two years ago, you transitioned from practice to academia, and joined Cumberland. In practice, you were with Big Law in New York and then became a federal prosecutor in Birmingham, right?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: How's your transition to academia been?
1: Happily, it has been great. I love teaching. It is so rewarding to interact with students and watch their understanding of the law grow. It is really refreshing to work with future lawyers at a stage in their careers when they are very open to learning and taking advice. Um, it probably helps that they are a captive audience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, Though they can escape on their phones nowadays, I guess.
1: And I have to say, I also love research and writing. It's one of the reasons I transitioned to academia. In practice, there were several aspects of the law that I thought did not make much sense, but I never had the time to study them, nor did my briefs or memos call for me to focus on them. So coming to academia has been so nice because I have the freedom to do that. And I love the collegiality I've found in academia. My colleagues have been very helpful with my transition and in giving feedback and tips on my writing and teaching. So it's been great.
0: That's great to hear. I, I know our students are thrilled to have you as a teacher and a resource. So as a federal prosecutor, you primarily prosecuted criminal healthcare fraud. And at Cumberland, you teach classes that are related to that work experience. Specifically, you teach criminal procedure, criminal law, and a number of health law-related courses, including health care fraud and abuse. Tell us more about your scholarship and if you have some projects you're especially excited about.
1: I'd be happy to. Right now, I am working on two related articles. They're both focused on something that perplexed and frustrated me as a health care fraud prosecutor. Specifically, that unlike the broader health care fraud laws, the primary federal anti-kickback law protects only government health insurance plans, like Medicare and Medicaid. We
0: should probably start with some of the basics for our listeners. What are examples of the broader health care fraud laws?
1: That's a great question. At the risk of oversimplifying it, health care fraud occurs when a provider lies or makes misrepresentations to a health insurance plan about the services he or she provided in order to get paid. For instance, it would be fraud if, say, a provider simply clipped a patient's toenails but billed the clipping as an expensive toe surgery. Or it would be fraud if a provider ordered medically unnecessary genetic tests for his or her patients and then represented to the insurance company that the tests were necessary.
0: Ah, and, and what are the anti-kickback laws that you mentioned specifically?
1: Well, in a nutshell, and again, oversimplifying, Kickback laws prohibit payments to providers in exchange for the provider to prescribe or refer an item or service. So let me explain it with an example. Say a back brace supplier wanted a doctor to refer the doctor's patients to the brace supplier. Well, how does the supplier do that? The supplier could either do it by providing the best quality and ideally best price braces on the market and convincing the doctor that these particular braces are best for the patients, or the supplier could just pay the doctor a fee, call the kickback every time he or she referred a patient to the supplier. The anti-kickback laws ban those payments.
0: Ah, got it, got it.
1: Now, as you can see from the example, kickbacks incentivize doctors and other providers to base patient care on the provider's personal financial gain instead of the patient's best interest.
0: Doesn't seem good and seems a little contrary to the do no harm mantra.
1: Yep, it isn't. Kickbacks have at least two negative results. One of them is they often result in patient harm. In some instances, significant patient harm. Second, they often lead to fraud. That is, to patients getting unnecessary and often very expensive care which adds to our already skyrocketing health care costs.
0: So, given that, anti-kickback laws seem quite sensible. Uh, You said that as a prosecutor, you found it frustrating that the law only protects federal government health insurance plans?
1: Yes. So, the primary criminal kickback law, the anti-kickback statute, only applies when kickbacks are given or paid for services that government health insurance plans, like Medicare and Medicaid, pay for. It does not apply when those referrals would be paid for by private health insurance. For instance, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama.
0: That's interesting.
1: As a prosecutor, that made little sense to me. To quote the famous bank robber, Willie Sutton, healthcare fraudsters go, quote, where the money is. That means that for the most part, fraudsters don't target just government health insurance plans. They go wherever... can successfully commit fraud often using kickbacks and that is usually both government and private health insurance programs so this omission from the federal anti-kickback laws makes even less sense when you consider that the majority of americans have private health insurance
0: yeah i think i heard that something like over 60 percent of americans have private health insurance
1: yep approximately 65 percent of americans have private health insurance most get it Through their employers and others purchase it individually
0: so more people are actually threatened by kickbacks in the private market than the government market meaning the law has a glaring hole in it to say the least
1: exactly assuming fraudsters target both which multiple congressional reports have recognized that they do this means that there is more opportunity for kickbacks to be paid for items or services that are paid for by private health insurance plans and that creates more opportunities for fraud and patient harm.
0: So, how did this issue affect your work as a prosecutor?
1: The limited application of the Anti-Kickback Statute, it, it forces prosecutors to artificially distinguish between conduct against private and government health insurance and complicates prosecuting already incredibly complicated cases. It also requires prosecutors to charge cases in ways that don't fully capture the conduct involved. And because of that, many prosecutors around the country have started using ill-fitting laws to fill this gap in the kickback laws. And then, to make things even more confusing, in 2018, Congress passed a law called the Eliminating Kickbacks in Recovery Act, I'll refer to as ECRA, and it bans kickbacks for health care services paid for by both private and public insurance, but Congress limited it to only certain opioid-related treatments and services.
0: Interesting. So you, you've been researching why the anti-kickback statute and ECRA have such different coverage, right?
1: Exactly. So the first article reviews the legislative history of the anti-kickback statute to see if that history sets out why Congress limited the statute's coverage to government health insurance plans. My findings are that the justifications Congress provided don't withstand scrutiny. And now the second article, which I'm also working on at the same time, is more prescriptive and argues that the anti-kickback statute should be expanded to cover private health insurance plans, particularly in light of the difficulties its limited coverage creates for prosecutors. It also argues that ECRA does not solve the problem and indeed may compound it because although ECRA covers both types of health insurance, it is limited to a small subset of opioid-related conduct.
0: Well, and we should share with our listeners that you were one of only four junior faculty selected to present a draft of your paper at a recent Health Law Scholars workshop, co-sponsored by the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics and the St. Louis University Law School Center for Health Law Studies.
1: Yes, I was very fortunate to be selected to be part of that workshop The feedback I received in it was incredibly helpful.
0: Well, we are so fortunate to have you at Cumberland, and we are really proud of all you're doing. I've enjoyed getting to know more about your work, and I look forward to discussing future works with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me today.
1: Thanks, Dean Hudson. It was good talking to you as well.
0: Thanks for listening to the Cumberland School of Law Research Radio. Join us next time for more interesting backstories on legal scholarship.